This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thanks for downloading or streaming this new podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can get new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe to stay up to date. This week, our exploration of English history takes us across the Atlantic to discover the story of three Native American artefacts found in the collection at Audley End House in Essex. These objects had actually been at the property for more than three centuries, but it's only recently that English heritage has been able to solve the mystery of where they came from and how they came to be part of the collection. Joining us to explain more are Curator of Collections and Interiors, Dr Peter Moore, and Curator of the Seneca Art and Culture Centre in New York State, USA, Michael Galbin. Hi Charles. Hello, glad to be here. (laughs) So let's start off with Peter then. Peter, can you start by introducing us to Audley End? We've covered it a few times on the podcast. We've been there a couple of times as well. But for people who are new and who don't know it, um, tell us more about the house and where it is. Audley End is a large mansion situated in the Cam Valley, just outside the town of Saffron Walden in the rural northwest corner of Essex. And it was originally one of the greatest houses of Jacobean England, built on the foundations of Benedictine Monastery between around 1605 and 1614, we think, by a man called Thomas Howard, who was the first Earl of Suffolk. And it's the kind of place that you might sometimes hear people refer to as a prodigy house, which essentially means a large and showy country house built by a courtier with a view to accommodating and entertaining royalty. And in fact, in one stage in its history, Audley End was actually owned by royalty, as it was purchased by Charles II after the restoration in 1660, But it was eventually returned to the Earls of Suffolk in the 18th century, and owing to its colossal size, really, it just proved too big to maintain. So parts of it fell into disrepair and were demolished. But then it really had a change in fortunes after that, and the house was partially remodelled and renovated in the 18th century, with people such as Robert Adam, the leading designer of the time, coming in to design a new suite of interiors, and the famous Capability Brown redesigning the landscape. Um, It really was a period of revival for the house. And that continued into the 19th century, although it became a family home at that point for the third Lord and Lady Braybrook and their eight children. And then later, during the Second World War, it was a secret training base for members of the Polish Special Operations Executive. So the short answer to your question really is that over the course of its 400-odd year history, Audley End has had many different guises and many personalities. It's been all kinds of different things to different people. And for me, it's that extraordinary variety that makes it such an endlessly fascinating place to visit and explore. Yeah, it's one of our favourites on the podcast, I must say. So obviously we've covered this this large history quite briefly there. But tell us who lived there. You talked about the uh, Braybrooks, but were there any other people before that? So I've already mentioned Thomas Howard, who built the house and the fact it was later a royal palace, though we probably don't think it was used much by the king. But by the middle of the 18th century, it was lived in by a man named Sir John Griffin Griffin. And he spent vast amounts of money on the house, virtually developing the collection from scratch and then passing it into the hands of the Neville family. And they are probably the owners whose presence is most apparent today. And the most notable couple from this period really are Richard and Jane Neville, the third Lord and Lady Braybrook. And with their eight children, I I think they had a really wonderful time at Audley End. It was a place that was full of life and energy. You get the sense it was a very sociable environment with lots of entertaining 
and many frequent visitors, especially from people associated with the nearby Cambridge University. And Richard and Jane were highly intellectual. They travelled a lot. They seemed to have been fascinated by people and places and the world around them. So they had a natural inclination towards the study of geography, natural history, archaeology and anthropology. And this insatiable curiosity and appetite for learning certainly seems to have rubbed off on their children. And I think it's that curiosity as well which has resulted in this collection of objects gathering at Audley End House. How many objects are there? Well, it's, it's hard to put an exact figure on it. There are officially about 25,000 objects in the collection at Audley End, but it's probably a lot more in fact as some items are counted in groups and cataloguing the collection is still an ongoing process. So this includes all of the furniture and decorative arts and the types of things you expect to see as you walk around the house, over 400 paintings, around 10,000 books in the library, maybe 5,000 prints and drawings, many, many thousands of taxidermy specimens, particularly birds, cultural artefacts from all over the world, vast collection of natural history specimens, and what can really only be described as assorted curiosities and mementos, all sorts of unusual and surprising things, filling various cabinets and display cases through the house. Really, I like to think of it as something of a microcosm of the world. And if people have a preconceived notion of what you might typically expect to find in uh, you know, a quintessentially English country house, I think Audley End really blows that idea out of the water. It sounds a little bit like um, the collection that the children of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert started on the Isle of Wight at um, Osborne, where they started um, gathering this collection of curiosities in the Swiss cottage. But I suppose at Audley End, it's uh, on a rather larger scale because there are more of them. It's a larger property. And I suppose the final thing is that this collection spans a number of generations of owners. Exactly. And that comparison has been made before. And you're right, partly it's that age of antiquarianism and interest in all these different things that's happening in the 19th century. But absolutely, as you say, Audley End is that coupled with these multi-layered periods in its history with different people from different places and different interests all kind of mixed together in one huge kind of jumble. Yes. And of course, today, we're obviously here to talk about just three objects. And interestingly, they are of Indigenous American origin. What are these? Perhaps perhaps we could bring in Michael to tell us what they are. So, Michael, from the USA, New York State's Seneca Art and Culture Centre, take it away. What are they? Well, the three objects we're going to talk about are really amazing, but uh, the highlight to me are the two North American war clubs or war hammers. And then the third object is a leather shirt, you might even say tunic, all collected from the northeastern part of North America and uh, from our perspective fairly early on. Can you describe between the two of you what they kind of look like? Let's start with the war hammers first. What sort of size? The clubs are, I'd say, about a foot and a half long each, made from wood, one of which also has a metal axe-like implement protruding from the end. At the handles, they both have a little hole through the shaft that presumably could be used to attach a strap. And the shafts start quite narrow and get slightly wider, curving towards the end. And they're also beautifully faceted. And at the end where it curves round, it's a bit like a hockey stick, but more bulbous. And they have various markings on their shafts on both sides, some of which look like bands or parallel lines with a few diagonal ones and 
others look a bit like stick people and there are various other little motifs surrounding these markings and they're both incredibly tactile and sit in your hand so perfectly the one thing i found really surprising when i first picked them up was their weight they were far lighter than i expected them to be and they hang above a doorway in the great hall we know from historic watercolors of the interiors at audley end they've been in that position since at least the mid 19th century where they were probably placed there as a decorative feature but beyond that description i've given you we knew virtually nothing about them there was almost nothing at all in the curatorial record so i've really had to turn to michael to really unpick and more expertly describe what those details are and what they mean yes we'll get into that let's round out the descriptions though uh, michael can you describe what the shirt looks like certainly the shirt is fairly simply cut it's more like a tunic really it's made of leather the method of tanning is likely indigenous tanning using the brains of the animal to soften and preserve the leather it's cut very boxy so the body of the shirt or tunic is very rectangular and the sleeves are also made of rectangles there's no gusset at the armpit for comfort these uh, leather shirts sometimes, and this example has very short fringe and some decorative elements at the neck, and it's in great condition for an object which is likely a couple hundred years old at least. It's a beautiful example of sort of the upper Great Lakes leather shirt tradition. Did you describe sort of tassels on it? Am I right in saying that sort of it's got that sort of decorative aspect? Yeah, at, at the seams, there's always the opportunity to have fringe cuts. So on the sides of the shirt, there's fringe. At the um, shoulder seam, there's fringe. And then you kind of have a little bib, which is a triangular leather piece that kind of hangs down in the back, presumably, with these very interesting cutouts, star-shaped cutouts and slits. And then some tassels, which are long triangular leather pennants that hang with cutouts on them and fringe. It's all, all very pleasing and designed to catch the eye. You know, when you wear these shirts, the movement of the fringe and the uh, pennants and the bibs catches your eye and, and really would enhance any movement that the wearer would be making. Yes. And having seen it, I think, in pictures, does it have a hood as well? I think what you're describing is actually the bib or the pennant that would hang in the back. I see. So I don't think it's a hood. I think it's just a decorative element. And to speculate a little bit, well, a lot, it might be representing some kind of a kerchief. I see. Do we know what kind of leather it's made out of? What kind of animal it would have come from? I couldn't say for sure, but knowing the region, it could be white-tailed deer, caribou even, it's difficult to say without a, a real analysis, and I don't know if uh, Dr. Moore has gotten any of that information. Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Are there going to be tests uh, carried out, or have there been tests carried out on it, Peter? No, there haven't been any tests carried out yet, but it would be amazing to do that, to learn more about it. We simply knew it as a deerskin shirt, but as Michael suggested, it's possible to determine exactly what type much more specifically. So... Peter, then tell us, how did Audley End get hold of this indigenous American property, exactly? Well, it's really hard to say, or at least you know, not much at all was known. So I'll start with the shirt. The curatorial files 
when I joined English Heritage in 2017, suggested that it might have been acquired by Richard Neville, one of the children of the third Lord and Lady Braybrook. And the reason for this line of thought was because in August 1838, at the age of 18, he became a lieutenant in the Grenadier Guards and was sent to Canada for just over a year where he was mainly stationed at the military garrison in Montreal. So the assumption had been that perhaps he acquired it during that trip. And I tried to follow that line of inquiry mainly through consulting the diary he kept during his time in Canada, which is today in the Cambridge University Library. And I scoured the diary for clues and gained a really vivid sense of what life was like in Montreal, seeing it through the eyes of this young man and reading his accounts of the local flora and fauna, the geography, weather, people. And really, he gives an amazing sense of wonder and awe at this new, unfamiliar place that he found himself in. And at the very end of his stay in October 1839, he does a bit of traveling with a companion. He goes all the way down the St. Lawrence River to Lake Ontario, then to Niagara Falls, where I, I found it quite funny. He commented on there being a very nice museum there and all the way to New York before heading up the Hudson River and finally back to Montreal in December. And he makes some passing references to what he describes as Indian people and talks about paying a visit to an Indian village, but not in much detail at all. And there's no mention of him acquiring the shirt. And the clubs had also been suggested as possibly coming from that same trip. But we also knew there was another American connection in the family through Charles Cornwallis, who was a British army general who served in the American War of Independence in the late 1770s and early 1780s. And his granddaughter, Jane, married into the family at Audley End, and then she subsequently inherited the Cornwallis family's Suffolk estates, so brought many of those collections to Audley End. So that was another line of inquiry, but really that's as far as we could get, and we needed some more specialist knowledge to advance those theories. I'm guessing this is where Michael comes in. Absolutely. We were fortunate to have some really great local contacts at the Cambridge Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. They put us in touch with someone called Professor Laura Piers, who was curator for the Americas collections at the Pitt Rivers Museum until she retired in 2018. And her knowledge of North American material culture was just phenomenal. She was immediately able to tell me more about them. But straight away, she suggested I speak to someone of Indigenous heritage who could not only help to determine how and when they might have been acquired, but someone who could, who could explain their cultural significance and meanings. So absolutely, as you say, that's when and we were put in touch with Michael. And Michael, this brings us back to you. So just to give us a bit of a flavour about where you're based, we've introduced you already as being in uh, New York State, but tell us whereabouts exactly. We're um, about five hours by car from New York City proper. And uh, we're located in the sort of the western portion of New York State, due south of Toronto, you might say, in a region we call the Finger Lakes. And to be a little more specific, the Seneca Art and Culture Center is located on an original 17th century Seneca Indian town site, a significant one. And so that's where I'm calling in from. And here I'm the curator and the historian for the Seneca Art and Culture Center. And I happen to be indigenous. I'm a, a Northern Paiute and a Washoe uh, Indian from the state of Nevada. Just so that we're uh, getting it all right and that everyone who is listening to this is also getting it right in their heads. What do we say these days? What's the right way to say it? Do we say Native American? Do we say Indigenous American? What's the best phraseology to use when we're talking about these objects? That's a really good question. And um, 
we decided long ago here at, uh, at our site that Native American seemed to be at the time the most understood, well understood, and least offensive. But of course, with terminology, it's really personal and specific. So lately, we've been shifting our terminologies to Indigenous North American or just using indigenous because here in in North America, it's sort of obvious who we're talking about. But I think that any term could be uh, used derogatorily, but uh, right now we're leaning towards uh, indigenous North American. I mean, best of all would be to know the exact people, their nation or tribe, and use that, the term that they go by themselves. But failing that or not knowing that, Native American or Indigenous North American is totally fine. I see. Let's talk more about the actual objects. And when you sort of heard from Peter, were you surprised to get an email, I suppose, from your contact, Laura Pierce, via Peter, that there were these objects that belonged to Indigenous American peoples that were in England, in Essex? We have to unpack a lot of your question, but was I surprised at the uh, communication? No, I've been contacted by other European museums about their material, but the surprise came really from the exceptional quality of the objects and, you know, eventually our direct connections to them. And that really was a a shock. I've been studying North American really Northeastern North American material culture for well over 20 years. And to kind of see objects which were unknown to me was really great. It was just exceptional. It's very rare to kind of be exposed to objects that are new, not well published, not well researched. And the opportunity to uh, investigate was just really overwhelming. So presumably a Zoom meeting of, or some sort of teleconference was set up for you actually to see these objects. Did that take place? Yeah, it, it did. And, and, uh, and Peter provided some excellent images. When you study material culture, the methodology that I use really was, is recommended in a lot of different areas of study is to simply know or discover what can be known, the obvious and the literal from the objects. So once you know what it is, maybe the materials, the shape, all those details, when they're known, then you can start to explore other objects which are similar. You can, you know, make some speculations. And then of course, looking at the catalog records and the histories of the family and kind of try to reconstruct the story of the objects is sort of the last part, but it really is the icing on the cake. So when you got some of these images, you were shown them, how did you then start investigating the origins and and, and interpreting the appearance and the markings and and that sort of thing? Okay, so these clubs were made anciently prior to any of the colonial period in North America, and then through the colonial period all the way into the modern era. So the object type is well-known. You know, from our description, it sort of has a ball end, a round or ovoid shaped end, and then a handle. And these, these objects typically are at the large end or maybe two feet long or less. And um, <clears throat> so we call them ball-headed war clubs. And there's lots of them known. But of that type, the earliest ones end up being collected 
in that colonial period and during the um, colonial wars in North America. And looking at the shape, looking at the iconography, looking at the um, sort of pictography on the on the clubs, I mean, right away, I, I knew that these were not just important clubs, but they were actually used at the time. So these are, you know, had cultural significance because they were not meant for trade or the art market, but were made for use. And then to me, knowing, you know, and looking at a lot of these different war clubs, they fit within that American War for Independence time period of the 1770s into the 1780s. Right. So do you think they could have actually been used in proper aggression against uh, the British colonial forces, for example? To me, yeah, doubtless they were used. And that, that comes from the iconography, really. And of course, as, as Peter described, the clubs are very light, right, in weight. And that kind of happens to these objects over the last 250 some odd years. And that lightness to them is an indication of great age. But the real sign of, of that period is the iconography and being able to kind of read what the maker carved into the sides is what told me it was a, that 1770s, 80s time period. Right. Can you give us a bit more description about these um, markings, this iconography that, that gives it away for that time period? So to start out, in North America, there's a, a language of symbols that can be understood widely. This, uh, you might say, lexicon of symbols was important because of the diversity of languages amongst Native people. And so this pictography was something that everyone could use, and it would be widely understood by many different peoples and, and indigenous nations. And it was used to communicate through woven belts. It was used to communicate even on trees, trailside or roadside. It was used to communicate even on the body. So tattooing, tattoos of that time could be read and understood. So on these clubs, we've got some very important carved iconography. And, and as Peter described, there are some stick figures on them. When you see these stick figures, you can tell if they're male or female, depending on the, the shapes. Um, you can tell whether or not they were living at the time and actually were captured in war, or if they were victims and were deceased. That determination is by the either the presence or lack of a head on the human figures. So the maker is actually creating a war record on the side of their club. And then there's also indications of campaigns. So when a warrior went out, they would carve these long sort of rectangular designs that were representing something called a war mat, which was a, um, a bundle of materials which contained spiritual and ceremonial objects which were carried for protection in war. This was a very important, special, you know, spiritually charged object. And so when it, when it went off, when the group of warriors went off, they carried it. And so one mat meant it was on one campaign. And on one of these clubs, there's, I mean, maybe a dozen or more war mats, which meant that the club was carried a dozen or more times into battle, into war. And yeah. Wow. That's remarkable. So if that one club could talk, it could uh, tell us about 12 battles that it witnessed in a way. 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's what we all wish. <laughs> we wish all these objects would talk to us somehow. Yes, but they do a lot of talking already by what you've described, which is a really interesting way of recording history in a way. But how rare are objects like these, the shirts, the two clubs? The shirts are probably more rare than the clubs because the clubs were actually made sometimes with the intended purpose to be left on the battlefield as a calling card, you might say, or a witness to the battle. And on the sides of the club, you know, was carved the results of the battle. Sometimes there was even a, a self-portrait carved on the club so that you knew actually, if you knew the maker's specific tattoo designs, you could actually know the, the man who left it behind. And they were given away for the same reason, to share the exploits, to be a uh, token of camaraderie and in battle. So they end up being a little bit more common, right? Hmm. That doesn't make them any less exceptional, these in particular, and the specificity of the time period and, the, and knowing when it was created, that makes it exceptional and rare of that type. But the shirts are, are more so. And really the only example that we could point to, which really relates well to the Audley End shirt, is one in, that was collected by Jasper Grant in the early 19th century. And it matches so well design-wise, shape, cut, and everything that it might have came from the same community, if not the same person, the same woman who created it. You um, described them, it's possible to sort of generate a bit of a story around the provenance of the clubs particularly. Are we any closer to finding out what group of people might have been responsible for the one club or the other or both? I mean, I'm very, very, very encouraged by the connection with the Neville family and Lord Charles Cornwallis for a lot of reasons, but mostly because my original assessment matched well with what we believe to be, I would like to believe is the path that these clubs took to eventually end at the uh, the manor, right? What's your working theory then? I mean, uh, I suppose my original question, I didn't make it quite clear, was what tribe uh, might have been responsible for making the clubs? Can you guess at that at all? Well, the best guess, if the clubs follow the path of the, of the Cornwallis family, the best guess is that Lord Cornwallis, when he was in North America during that war for American independence, used Native American soldiers, you might say, or troops, warriors. And of the Native people that he used, uh, that he was you know, fighting with, it was the Iroquois people that were most, uh, most used. So the, the likely, likely sources of uh, uh, an Iroquois, or as we say, Haudenosaunee point of origin. That's very interesting, isn't it, that um, the British potentially in some parts were fighting alongside indigenous peoples against the pioneers, shall we say. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And in other parts, I presume it was the pioneers, shall we say, working alongside other indigenous peoples in other parts of the country. Yeah, it's a very complicated history, you know, but I guess I should explain that, you know, long ago, when the English colony was forming itself in North America, they inherited an agreement between the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois people and the Dutch. 
And as the British government took over the Dutch holdings in North America, this agreement was sort of picked up and uh, solidified between the Haudenosaunee and the British. And that alliance, that friendship and that agreement lasted well into more than 100 years, really, at that time of the American Revolution. And uh, the Haudenosaunee upheld their commitment. And many, many Haudenosaunee people supported the British. They were loyal to the crown and their agreement. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, sort of the explanation as to why large amounts of Haudenosaunee people supported the British government because of this agreement. It's fascinating. It's it's a really complicated history uh, and I think very nuanced as well. Is it possible, Michael, that perhaps these objects were given as gifts, bearing in mind that alliance you described from the indigenous peoples to the British that they were fighting alongside? I think so. It might be that Lord Cornwallis may have even purchased them. We know that there was a grouping of North American objects beyond what exists now at Audley End. Many of them were exceptional, but I think that the focus of the majority of them was on war. And so, you know, in the late 18th century, there's really three ways really to acquire these North American objects given as diplomatic gifts, gifts of friendship, gifts of alliance, or they could have been captured, you know, taken directly from a battlefield or a community or purchased because there was a, you know, there was a very vibrant market in North American objects in the 18th century, particularly among officers, European officers. It was very fashionable to bring back objects, you know, from the wilds of North America back to your hometown and home countries and have them on display as objects of curiosity and but also as evidence of your travels and you know your survival mm. uh you know amongst the native peoples one thing that occurred to me about the uh deerskin shirts does this have any features that uh, might indicate that it belonged to a certain age group was it a man's a woman's teenagers or a child because when i've looked at the size on the picture i wasn't quite sure what sort of size it would relate to well, to me, this is probably, you know, a shirt for a, a man or, or a young man. We have to take into account that the um, stature of people back in the, in the late 18th and early 19th century was not as great as it is today. And so a shirt that might appear small, maybe for a child or, or adolescent, maybe is really for an adult. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, for me, it's a little difficult to kind of nail that down. Maybe Peter has a better sense. It's on the small side. I certainly don't, don't think I could fit into it. And we've wondered about that, who might have worn it and whether it had been worn before it was acquired and came back to Audley End or whether someone at Audley End wore it, you know, dressed up in it. Um, presumably they didn't put it straight into a box or case. I think we do wonder whether it was enjoyed and used in a kind of fanciful way which I don't know if that would have been seen as um, disrespectful or if there's evidence of that happening we, we just don't know there's no record of it but it, there are the questions we've been kind of asking ourselves recently. Yes but you did make some other sort of connections between Audley End and the Seneca Art and Culture Centre in New York State can you tell us a bit more about that? So when I first mentioned the name Cornwallis Michael could hardly contain his excitement and, and replied 
straight back to me and I'll let you speak to him about what he discovered or the connection that he brought to my attention. So yeah, when the when the name Cornwallis popped up in conversation, I, I was just stunned because we have here another object which came from Lord Cornwallis. So the story goes that Jonathan King from the British Museum went to Audley End and surveyed the Native American materials and, you know, quote unquote, discovered this amazing cache of early, very early objects. Subsequently, some of these objects went to Christie's in the 80s for auction. This is sort of a serpentine story, but a good supporter of the Seneca Art and Culture Center and actually one of the main donors to our museum purchased an important cord. These are braided cords that were, you know, 20 feet long, and they were specifically designed to convey prisoners or captives back to a village or a town. And, you know, alongside that cord, which we call a prisoner's cord, is a beautifully embroidered, colorful object called a tump line and a couple of other objects, really. But these two objects really focus on on that uh, 1770s, you know, last quarter of the 18th century time period. They're very well situated in that time period. And so incredibly, we have on exhibit that prisoner's cord from Lord Cornwallis here in Victor, New York. And then we have the other objects that Cornwallis likely collected sitting in Audley End. It's just a, and totally by pure serendipity that uh, Peter and I made the connection and and now share the story uh, of our objects. So it sounds as though this Cornwallis, this Lord Cornwallis was quite a collector. I think so. So there were four exceptional objects that came out of his collection and went to Christie's. And then what, what is still at Audley End is, you know, incredible. <laughs> Speaking to your question about use and of these objects, like the shirt, and I would say is very likely something that a resident of Audley End put on and wore. We know that some of these collections were designed actually to be worn. So in the, in the 18th century, English, but also uh, French officers, for example, collected full suits of Indian clothing. And then when they went back to their homelands, would have them in there on display in some cases, but they would wear them and tell stories of what took place in in North America. Famously, Sir John Caldwell had an incredible collection and a suit that he wore and, and even was painted a number of times wearing it from the same time period. So this all sort of leads us back to Audley End, which is where we started when we started asking questions for this podcast. But um, obviously that is the place where people can see the shirt and clubs on display today. Peter, where, whereabouts in the house can we see them? They're more or less the first things you will encounter on your visit. So the shirt I mentioned was previously for many, many years in storage in a, in a box in Audley End in one of our 17 collection stores. But now I'm really pleased to say it's in a display case in the Great Hall um, with information about this story we've been talking about so people can enjoy it. And the clubs at present remain in the position they've occupied since the mid-19th century, probably when uh, Lady Jane Braybrook, who, whose 
previous name was Lady Jane Cornwallis. When she came to live at Audley End and brought her grandfather's objects with her and the Great Hall became a space where all sorts of arms and armour and objects from across the world were displayed. We've got Indian shields, Pacific clubs, all, all sorts of artefacts they displayed in the Great Hall. And these clubs, these American clubs, found a space above one of the doors. And for me, that's it's really interesting that... I think they survived at Audley End because they were used in that decorative way, almost just kind of in the background as part of the furniture. But it's quite telling that, you know, that is simply how they were viewed and kind of appreciated and enjoyed for so many years. And it's only in the past year we've revealed this much more interesting and important um, story about their cultural origin. Yes, because one thing we didn't cover at the start was when you suddenly came across these objects and then started making investigations. So when was that? The clubs, you can't miss them when you see them in the Great Hall. They're undeniably beautiful objects. But again, I was guilty of the same thing of not really getting around to exploring their stories until recently. And the shirts, it didn't take me much longer to find it. But as I said, we've got 17 stores of collection objects and over 25,000 things in the house so it took me a little longer to get around to seeing everything and I probably haven't seen everything yet. So finally is there now sort of interpretation panels displays that people can read and and learn more about these objects when they come to see the house? Yeah there's a, a booklet in the Great Hall that people can read talking about this process of discovering about them and explaining the context. And our room stewards also have been really captivated by the story and they love talking about these objects to visitors and particularly the shirt. I think the shirt is the more unfamiliar thing to people. People vaguely kind of can recognise what the clubs are, but the shirt just looks so unusual and so different. People are really drawn to it. And yeah, it's been um, hugely popular among our visitors. Michael, what's the process been like for you to um, work with Peter over this whole project and try to bring a bit more understanding and, and, and connect the dots and the provenance of these objects? It's such an honor and uh, personally gratifying to kind of be able to share and expose the histories of the objects and to talk about not just the materiality, but the stories that they hold inside of them. It really unlocks all kinds of conversations and just really, to me, so appropriate that the objects remain above the door as they once hung long ago, because that's a a big part of their history. It becomes a part of their history. Who was holding them? Who made the decisions to hang them? Why are they there? And making Audley End the center of what what is really a global discussion of many different peoples, many different cultures and many different histories. I just think it's uh, wonderful. Yes. And, and Peter, has it been quite satisfying for you as well to work with Michael and with all those other people who are involved in investigating this mystery? Absolutely. And I really particularly remember one moment. It was at the height of lockdown near the beginning of last year in the kind of cold long winter where I was more or less the only person in Audley End some days and I had this meeting video call set up with Michael and I took the clubs down off the wall and I was sitting there with them on my own in front of the laptop in this dark cold freezing house and just holding them up to the screen to the camera and showing him and just I remember just feeling this sense of them suddenly coming to life and 
as a moment I'll always remember. It was, yeah, really magical. Okay, well, um, I hope other people will get to enjoy the magic on their visits to Audley End during 2022. And I hope at some point as well, Michael, you might be able to hop on a plane and, and come and see the objects in person as well. I think it's it's very possible in 2022. I have two trips planned overseas, and uh, I think that uh, one of them, at least I'll tack on a, a little journey over to Audley End. I'm sure Peter will be able to make you a cup of tea for your arrival. <laughs> oh, it would be, be lovely. It would be an absolute pleasure. We'd, we'd love to see Michael at Audley End. And if you don't mind the English Heritage Podcast coming along and putting a microphone in the middle, then perhaps we could do an update as well. Oh, you'd be very welcome to come along and uh, share that moment. Thank you, gents, for talking to us. It's been really fascinating and I hope people will appreciate the story and I'm sure there'll be more to tell in the future. So thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. You're so welcome. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll uncover the extraordinary life of Queen of France and later England, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Her tremendous experience and diplomatic range, her connections allow her to play this incredibly important role in the history of England and indeed the history of France. Thanks for listening. See you next time.